Welcome to Freaking Out About Work with Randy Freaking, the podcast about working in America. Emanating from Studio One at Gwynn Sound in downtown Cincinnati, Ohio. Our first 24 episodes of Freaking Out About Work explored various aspects of employment law with guests who practice employment law. And we also visited with ordinary folks about their work experiences. And we also visited with other experts on navigating through the complexities of work life. After episode 24, we paused to think about the next season and we are in the midst of finding that answer. But in the meantime, my daughter, Rebecca Freaking in her professional life as a marriage and family therapist, or more commonly known as a couples therapist, and who I simply call Becky rather than Rebecca, asked me to be a guest host, or asked to be a guest host, for our next episode. And we're just going to call this a bonus edition of Freaking Out About Work. And so, without further ado, I will turn the microphone over to my daughter, Becky, and I will become the guest. Well, thank you. And thanks for reluctantly being here today and letting me turn the tables on you. You're welcome. (laughs) So our listeners should know that my dad, who I'll call Randy during today's interview, is not one to talk about himself. But given that he just retired this past year, I persuaded him to let me host a bonus episode of Freaking Out About Work, sort of a belated Father's Day episode, as an opportunity to learn about his experience as an employment lawyer. So Randy, what is it like to be on the other side so far? Are you still up for this? Doesn't feel that great, Becky, actually. <laughs> I'm a little nervous. <laughs> the tables have good. been turned. You're going to have so much in- insight and empathy for the next season, potentially. That's right. <laughs> I will remember this when I have guests who say they are nervous. I heard your only restriction is that I not write a book someday about our family after learning all, all of this new information about you. That is correct. No books <laughs> about the freaking family, please. Just podcasts only. Got it. All right. (laughs) Well, since you are the guest today, I'm going to start by introducing you this time. To our listeners who may not know, Randy Freaking has been practicing law since 1982, so almost 40 years. He is the founding partner of Freaking Myers and Rule, a law firm devoted primarily to the rights of working people, whether they are minimum wage workers, blue collar employees, or white collar executives. He is a frequent lecturer on employment law and has successfully represented many employees in state and federal courts. He has received many awards and recognitions for his work as a lawyer, both nationally and locally. And he volunteers at several local organizations and serves on the board of the Cincinnati Reds Community Fund. He has also authored four books, two on employment law and two geared towards his love of baseball. (laughs) So, Randy... Have I embarrassed you enough yet? How yes. uncomfortable are you? <laughs> very uncomfortable. <laughs> Thank, Thank you, you very much. Thank you for being much. honest. That's a good start. <laughs> um, all right, well, let's get right to it. So with your previous guests, you've wanted to know about their journey to becoming successful, how they got to their points in their careers. Um, and now we want to hear from you. So let's start from the beginning. Tell us a little bit about your family and upbringing and you know, how did that shape your ideas about your career, if at all? Well, you know, I came from a basic 
pretty basic middle-class family in Finneytown, which is a northern suburb of, mm-hmm. of Cincinnati. You know, my dad, he worked, he was a salesman for Yellow Pages. My mom was a stay-at-home mom. We, uh, they had six kids. Uh, my mom and dad both uh, did quite a bit of volunteer work. My dad volunteered at a soup kitchen, uh, St. Vincent de Paul, and my mom uh, volunteered at a place called Tender Mercies. So they kind of gave me the gift of encouraging volunteerism. Um, you know, we were the kind of family that we never knew a lawyer except for one, and that was a friend of my dad's by the name of Ralph Mitchell. Hmm. He was a wonderful guy, and he was a trial lawyer. Uh, so when I was growing up, I, of course, I fancied myself as becoming a professional baseball player someday. Of course. But my uh, my athletic career kind of peaked in sixth grade. <laughs> And so I originally that must have been a tough disappointment for you. <laughs> it was. It was terrible. But then I just turned to my dream was to become a sports journalist someday. And so I wrote for the uh, high school newspaper and magazine, covered sports. Uh, did a brief stint at the University of Dayton on the campus radio station as like a newscaster. Hmm. Um, and then. Uh, Somehow I got into a desire to become a lawyer, mm-hmm. and that was in college, uh, based really upon what I knew about Ralph Mitchell, who was a trial lawyer. I was just going to ask, well, this Ralph Mitchell, did he like kind of get the idea going in your head or have some kind of an impact on you? He did. He never said anything, but I knew he was an insurance defense lawyer. Mm-hmm. And I knew he was a trial lawyer, which meant he actually worked in the courtroom occasionally, which is a, a rare breed, really. One percent of lawyers might be trial lawyers. Hmm. And I remember, like it was yesterday, walking in the Carl Rubin's federal courtroom in downtown Cincinnati and watching Mr. Mitchell. Oh, really? In that day, as he was cross-examining witnesses. And I sat there with my mom and I thought, I think I'd like to do that someday. What made you think that you'd want to do it someday? I I just had such great admiration for Ralph Mitchell. Mm-hmm. You know, he just seemed like a great guy. He was funny, and yet he was doing this major work. It was a it was an airplane crash case of some sort. Wow! And he was defending you know Delta or American or somebody. And I thought, now this is really cool. And it was just a very impressive yeah. courtroom. Yeah. If you ever go to the federal courthouse in Cincinnati. Stop in just one of the federal trial courtrooms, and you'll be blown away with kind of the magnificence of the setting. Mm-hmm. And so I decided pretty much right then and there to try to go to law school. Wow. So you were how old then when you were watching him? I was uh, 19 or 20 years old. Okay. So my freshman or sophomore year in college, I must have been on spring break or something. Mm-hmm. And then I took the LSAT eventually and snuck into law school. (laughs) (laughs) Somehow they let you in. That's right. Okay. But you were not, you couldn't major in law in undergrad. No, I did uh, economics. I was a major in economics and a minor in poli-sci. And I had two influential professors at the University of Dayton. I remember John Rapp, who I, econ uh, professor up there, head of the department, And I remember telling him I was thinking about law school. 
And he looked at me like I was nuts, like, Randy, there's too many lawyers already. Why would you go to law school? And I gave him kind of a cocky response, which was, but Professor Rapp, I don't think there's enough good ones. Hmm. And he kind of looked at me and goes, oh, you might be right. Yeah. And then I had Professor Kearns for poli sci, and he got me more interested, I think, actually in law school than John Rapp did. Okay. And I went on to Ohio State. Okay. Um, and so you decided at that point to pursue law, but how did you find your way to employment law specifically? You know, I found my way to employment law. Um, really, I, that actually started earlier. I was I was in high school. Maybe it was freshman or sophomore year at college. I read a book that I've referenced on this podcast before called Working by Studs Terkel. You reference it quite a bit on this podcast. I have referenced it quite a bit. I, I love the book. Studs Terkel just examined ordinary Americans and their jobs, anywhere from garbage collectors to executives, but mostly blue-collar people who just told the story of their life and how important their jobs were to them. And so it occurred to me, someone sometime when I was in law school, I got attracted to labor law courses and employment discrimination courses. And I thought that's really what I want to do because if you think about it, the three most important things in most people's lives are their family, their religion, and their job in whatever order they choose. And so I didn't particularly want to be a family law lawyer. And so I became I an employment. I understand that. And I certainly didn't want to be a religious lawyer. You know, God, sure for, God forbid, <laughs> so to speak. And so I was drawn to employment law. I really liked it. I liked my labor law courses at Ohio State and then particularly my employment discrimination um, courses at Ohio State taught by a professor by the name of Lou Jacobs, who I later came to know that he was like nationally known for employment law. So I had a great oh, professor. Okay. So you ended up, I mean, you read that book in high school and it really resonated with you. And then in college, you noticed, or in um, law school, you noticed, you started taking, you were naturally drawn to those courses that focused on employment law. And that's when you kind of realized, maybe this is my thing. Exactly. Okay. So tell us about your early experience out of law school. Uh, what were those, you know, first years like? I've heard they are, they can be a pretty tough grind for most new lawyers. Um, and then what propelled you to take the leap and start your own firm? Well, you know, kind of a funny story on our way to my first job was Ralph Mitchell. I mentioned him before. Yeah. That was the first law firm I interviewed with when I was in law school trying to get a summer job. And as much as I loved Ralph Mitchell, they apparently decided that I was not good enough for that law firm. I, really? I did not get an offer really? from Mr. Mitchell's law firm. <laughs> so I got an offer from Frost and Jacobs. I clerked there during the summers while I was in law school. Okay. And so I just kind of naturally gravitated to Frost and Jacobs. They were nice enough to extend me an offer mm -hmm. upon graduation. And that yep. was a grind the first several years there. Uh, but... The other interesting story, at least to me, is that I was there for about a year. It's a big law firm, uh, corporate defense work. 
And Professor Jacobs did some side legal work. And I remember distinctly one day I was in the hallway at Frost and Jacobs and the elevator opened and off stepped Lou Jacobs. He was there to take a deposition or something, probably in a class action that he was working on or something like that. Okay. And he saw me with my beard on and everything, which was sort of out of place for Frost and Jacobs. I think it was myself and one other guy had beards in the office. It was a very clean cut kind of place, Got pretty it. straight and narrow. Mm-hmm. And Lou Jacobs, who I called Professor Jacobs, looked at me and said, Randy freaking, what are you doing here? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and I kind of thought to myself, yeah, he's right. What am I doing here? <laughs> and so back in those days, it was seven years up or out to become a partner. But if you left before seven years, even voluntarily, the suspicion was that they told you they were not going to make a make you a partner. Okay. And so I decided somewhere along those lines, maybe third, fourth, fifth year, okay, I'm going to leave, but I'm going to make partner first. Okay. So it doesn't look like I got bounced out of Frost and Jacobs. And that's what happened. Made me partner 1989. I left 1990. Got it. And why do you think he said that to you coming out of the elevator? Randy Freaking, what are you doing here? I think from law school, he knew I was, did not have um, kind of a corporate mentality. Okay. He knew that um, I didn't want to defend employers. Okay. And that's what I had to do for eight years Okay. at Frost and Jacobs. It was wonderful training. Absolutely fantastic. Uh, I, I owe much of my success uh, to what I learned at Frost and Jacobs. Um, I had a wonderful mentor there by the name of Jim Lawrence. And I credit him with mentoring me on a management style which was let Randy freaking do what he wants to do. He gave me a couple clients over in Indiana. That's a pretty convenient management style. Well, it's, you know, no Mike, you know, it's, it's simply not micromanaging. He was managing me, Mm. but he was giving me freedom and he was giving me freedom to make mistakes. Got it. And I learned a lot from making mistakes. It never resulted in any substantial harm to clients but he wasn't proofreading everything I was writing. He wasn't reviewing questions I was going to ask in a courtroom. He let me do what I did. And, and and oftentimes we teamed up on cases, but when we teamed up, it didn't feel like boss and subordinate. It nice. felt like we were on the same team and he made me feel like I was an equal. And so I tried to carry that over. Uh, when I started freaking in bets. I, I thought that was a great lesson. I think, you know, yeah. most lawyers, you know, you have to be 25 or so to get out of law school. You ought to be pretty mature by there, by that time. And we all basically know what we've got to do. And then mm-hmm. you just do your best. And I'm sure if I made a major mistake, he told me. But he wasn't going to pick on me for every little mistake I made. I'm sure I made lots of little mistakes. Right. You hire good people that you trust and then you trust if they make mistakes, they can probably figure that out themselves and learn from it themselves. They probably don't need you to pile on top of it. Most people don't like to be micromanaged in my experience. Right. And it sounds like being at Frost and Jacobs, it wasn't um, wasted years because there's there sort of some value in actually learning. I'm in the field that I want to be in, but this is not quite the side of it that I want to be doing. 
I had to kind of right. cross that off the list and like narrow down. Now I really know this is what I want to do because I want to be on the other side. Right. And I kind of got in the inside the head. Right. That's true. You got the inside the knowledge of who I you're the going inside up knowledge of corporate America and how they thought. Mm-hmm. And corporate America thinks in, in one of two ways. Let's settle this case for less money than we're going to spend on the lawyers. Okay. Or we're not going to settle this case. And to hell with them. <laughs> Mm-hmm. You know, we're going to teach this guy a lesson who's suing us, and we're not going to encourage other lawsuits by settling. I thought they were absolutely nuts, and I think it encouraged me to leave because I, I remember sitting there with their general counsel saying, you know, mm-hmm. this employee— we shouldn't be doing this. We he really got screwed. Case. Yeah. He really got screwed. Why don't we settle with him? And the general counsel's attitude was, we don't care. Mm-hmm. which I didn't like. Mm-hmm. And I've often said to people in 100 months at Frost and Jacobs, I never heard... Not that you were counting. Not that I was counting. I never heard an employer tell me that they thought they screwed anybody over. Wow. And I could tell by reviewing the case that, in fact, they had screwed over people. Mm-hmm. Occasionally. It's not often. You know? Yeah. I always think you know 99% of supervisors are pretty good people. It's the one percent mm-hmm. that spoils the broth. It's the one percent that has allowed freaking and bets and now freaking Myers and Rule to be successful. Right. <laughs> so thank you to them, I guess, on some level. Thank, thank, thank you to the bad supervisors and bad managers. And it just didn't sit well with you that they wouldn't just take that one percent where they could just sort of acknowledge, okay, this guy has a case, let's settle. They were instead just like rigid about we never settle because we don't want to encourage anybody, even if it has a lot of merits, we don't want to encourage anybody to. It was great for me personally. You know, every lawyer wants that. Hey, we'd rather pay you than settle with that individual. Mm -hmm. And I got great trial experience doing it. True. Um, But it didn't sit well with me. Right. Okay. So... I think that also helped encourage me to leave the defense side of the practice. Mm-hmm. And how did you knew that you? How did you figure out that you were not just going to leave, but that you're going to leave and start your own firm? Well, That's I always a pretty big leap. Yeah, it was a big leap. It wasn't like I went up. You know, most employment lawyers who represent employees are solo practitioners, so you don't see very many law firms representing employees. It's mostly solo practitioners. So that's kind of what you did. Why is that? Well, it's a very difficult area of practice. Um, And I don't know why people tend to remain solo or have one or two lawyers. Um, I had a little entrepreneurial spirit in me. I, I started the printing company of all things at one time. Utter disaster. (laughs) <laughs> I started up, I started up a uh, newsletter, which was more successful and okay. which helped uh, fund your college account to some degree. It was called the Serb So that was a Bulletin. wonderful idea. <laughs> <laughs> Very successful. And then we had a little seminar business. And when I say we, it was Jeff Betts and I in the early days. Uh, but we, we had some unsuccessful business ideas. But so having a little entrepreneurial spirit, both of us, he was a good friend of mine from the University of Dayton. We thought, ah, why not start a law firm? It's like starting a little business. And so we did that. Uh, but we went into it with the idea that if we were successful, 
we were going to try to grow it as opposed to just be Jeff Betts and Randy freaking forever and forever like most employment lawyers in the country. Okay. We were go- we went into it with the idea we were going to add other lawyers and try to grow. Uh, but it was nerve-wracking because we didn't know what we were doing. We had no business plan. We just both were at big law firms and kind of decided at the same time we wanted to get out. And so we joined forces and we started it. And a good friend of mine who had started his own law firm, Mike Flores, told me, uh, Randy, if you can survive for six months, you'll be okay. So don't quit Frost and Jacobs until you've got at least six months of savings in the bank. Okay. So if you get six months, but you're still afloat, you'll be okay. And it turned okay. out like that, but it, t- it took Jeff and I both about six years to get to the point financially in terms of what we made to be even with the jobs we left. Oh, interesting. So it, it took okay. me until 1996 to make as much as I made in 1989. Got it. But we, we made do. We were fine. The, the nice thing about employment law is there's not enough employment lawyers who represent employees. Okay. And so getting clients is not the problem. It's settling cases and winning cases. It is the problem because the deck is stacked against employees in corporate America. Most employment discrimination cases are very difficult to win. Okay. Most people would think that juries side with the employee. Right, right. But they'd be more sympathetic to that person. That's the viewpoint. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the judges steer juries during trials. And the reality is that it's just under 50% of employees win at trial. Interesting. And most people would think it's a higher percentage, I think, mm-hmm. because of the sympathy factor. But not true. The law is, the law is very employer-oriented. There's a lot of hurdles for an employee to get over before they can be successful. Mm-hmm. And you've got to get over those hurdles before a company will settle with you. And if they won't settle with you, then you end up in, in court. They have to see that there's a real threat that you might win in court before they're willing to settle. And they know that that's a pretty high bar. Right. Okay. When I was at Frost and Jacobs, I don't remember ever telling somebody we would lose a case. Really? Right. I would encourage them to settle when I thought the guy got screwed. But I also knew that the deck was stacked in favor of the employer. And so chances were they ultimately will win. If 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 you run the string out, trial, court of appeals, Supreme Court, wherever, the employer is probably going to win. If you give me a random case today, mm-hmm. I will bet on the employer without knowing any facts. Wow. That's just the way it is. But why is it that way? Like, is it the way that the law is written? Is it financially people run out of? Well, it's a little David versus Goliath Mm -hmm. uh, to some extent because lawyers cannot afford to just, you know, uh, a lawyer representing employees generally has to front all of the costs along the way, court costs, and also only gets paid if they settle the case or they win in court. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they've got to front all the costs, and it's a long shot that it'll settle or that it'll win. Right. So you've got somewhat careful in the cases you take. Mm-hmm. On, a, on, on the other hand, 
a defense firm, they don't need to be careful. They're going to be paid by the hour, and corporations can afford to pay them by the hour. And there is an attitude in corporate America that if they settle cases, it encourages other lawsuits. I don't buy that. Okay. Because most settlements are confidential. I say That's most. True. It's really all all settlements, as a practical matter, are confidential. True. And so you're not encouraging further lawsuits just by settling cases. So, I mean, you, you did not always feel confident that the firm would be successful. You you did, like, really have to, to take a leap, and it took a long time to kind of get to the point financially where you were um, before you made that leap. Um, what what other earlier challenges did you have when you were just starting? What was back then freaking and bets? Um, what do you remember about those early years? Well, you know, uh, I mentioned Jim Lawrence before. I'll mention another guy uh, who I give great credit for my career. His name is Paul Tobias. May he rest in peace. He recently passed away. Uh, but he was an employment lawyer. He was nationally known as a great employment lawyer founded the National Employment Lawyers Association. And so when I went into practice, Becky, I thought I was going to be in competition with him. He's a Cincinnati lawyer representing employees. And I had tried some cases against him, and I really admired Mm -hmm. his passion. He He was really good. He had a lot of passion. And I thought, boy, I'd like to be like Paul Tobias someday. Okay. So I hang up the shingle on December 1st, 1990, and I'm thinking I'm competing with Paul Tobias. Right? Right. Well, on December 3rd, 1990, my phone rings. I had nothing to do because I didn't have any clients yet. I answer the phone. Hello, Randy, this is Paul Tobias. How can I help you? Wow. And for the next 25 years, if he told me once or asked me once, how can I help you? He asked me a thousand times. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah, so I needed somebody like that to kind of tell me the ropes, you know. So we we probably went to lunch a week or two later. I said, okay, Paul, so how do I actually do this? (laughs) That's how you can help me. Tell me how to do this. It probably would have been a good idea to go to lunch with Paul Tobias (laughs) maybe before (laughs) we made the decision. But fortuitously, wonderful guy, one of the most remarkable men on the planet. What about him made him call you and ask if he could help you, given that he was your competition in a sense? Well, what's really interesting about lawyers that represent employees, because we all feel kind of as the underdogs, we all collaborate. Okay. Every plaintiff's employment lawyer in the country is generally willing to help somebody else advance a case because everybody's interested in making workplaces fairer for employees. So we've got a common mission. We you know the it, deck is stacked against all of you. Yeah, it's it's called the just cause conspiracy loosely, which means hmm. that we're all in it to change the law, to make it so that there are wrongful discharge cases, okay. basically. Yeah. And so that kind of floored me. I learned that early on that employee lawyers, so lawyers representing employees, help each other routinely. Now, defense lawyers, on the other hand, I was at Frost and Jacobs. There's no way in the world I would have called Taft, Sustinius, and Hollister, one of our <laughs> competitors, and said, hey, can you help me out on this case? Right. Because they're all fighting you. for clients. Okay. They're fighting for the corporate clients. The defense firms are. Mm-hmm. Employee lawyers, there's enough people who get screwed on the job. There are more people get screwed on the job than we have lawyers to represent them. Got it. 
And so we're There's willing no to collaborate. There's no scarcity of people who need lawyers to help them. That's right. Any case I took, I was probably not taking away from Paul Tobias. I wasn't reducing his workload. I might be right. taking one particular client away from Paul. But he had plenty of work to do. I had plenty of work to do. Right, right. So we're not... That's amazing. He knew that, and then he made that call to you two days later. That's incredible. Yeah, he probably, you know, back in those days, we announced the formation of the firm by a, you know, a postcard. <laughs> so I probably, probably mailed those out on Monday, December 1st. He got it in the mail on Tuesday or Wednesday, and he said, I'm going to call this guy and try to help him. Wow. wow. And he continued to help me for 25 years. Nice. That's incredible. Yeah. Uh, and when you made the leap to starting your own firm, you made the leap from like employee and, and also partner, but to become, being more like the boss of the place. Um, so what was it like? What did you like about being, you know, quote unquote, the boss? What did you not like about being the boss? Well, I have to be honest. I think I liked being the boss in the sense of controlling my own destiny. Sure. You know, I think that's why people start their businesses and that we started small. So... We just liked the idea we were we were either going to sink or swim, and that's got its pressures and it's got its, its stresses. But I think we liked it. Uh, Jeff and I are both kind of competitive in the sense that we like to win. And so if we could be successful, that would make us feel good. Um, being the boss of other people, I don't know that I like that so much. It, we needed to hire people to make the place grow and be more successful. But I kind of followed the Jim Lawrence lesson, which was don't micromanage people. And I think that was very mm -hmm. helpful. I didn't want to be looking over people's shoulders. We trusted trusted people that we hired. Right. And, you know, thankfully we hired great people and they stuck with us by and large. Mm -hmm. You know, when I retired end of last year, Many of the folks that I was working with in 2020, I was working with in 1994, 1995, 1996 as we grew. Right, which says a lot. People right. do like not being micromanaged. They were good people and mm -hmm. they knew what they had to do and they did it. Nice. You know, and they made mistakes and we were like, okay, everybody makes mistakes. Yeah. Let's move on. Mm-hmm. So you liked being able to have control over like planning for your life and what what that was going to look like, but didn't necessarily love being the guy in charge or didn't thrive off of that. You more just liked hiring good people and I'm going to let them do their thing. Right. And, you know, being your own boss, a small business gives you a lot of flexibility. And I believe in a lot of flexibility for the employees, our staff and other lawyers, but also for me. I mean, yeah. by that time, Sue and I had four kids. And so if I had to get leave early to go to a ball game or go to a volleyball practice or go to a basketball game, I could do it. And I just have to adjust my schedule. I could go in the work at, I routinely went in, I left the house routinely about 5 a.m. And so I just worked as much as I needed to. I'd go home to the family. I'd work weekends. I generally work Sunday evenings thinking that's kind of the end of the weekend, mm -hmm. so I can sneak back down to the office. Um, and so I, I think I like that idea about it, being able to control my own schedule. I couldn't do right. that working at a big law firm. Right. Big okay. law firm expects you to be in there 50, 60, 70, 80 hours a week. And I thought if you can generate enough income 
in 30 hours, that's fine. Or 60 hours, whatever it took. Right. And you were the one who got to decide, yeah, this is enough. Right. This is okay. Right. What cases have had the biggest impact on you personally? You know, the biggest cases that, or the cases have had the biggest impact on me personally. Well, I would say the first one that comes to mind is we had a case against Avon Products in the mid-1990s. And that meant a lot to me personally and also to Jeff because it was a pretty significant, basically a class action against Avon Products, age discrimination for 160 older women. And why that impacted us or made us feel really good when we were successful in the end was that we were the ninth law firm that the women interviewed. And the first eight turned them down. Oh, wow. And said, you do not have a good case. Hmm. And Jeff and I kind of took a risk, and we thought they did have a good case. And the funny thing about that case, it was an age discrimination case where they closed a plant up in Springdale, Ohio. And they had all this, all these crazy reasons for why they chose Springdale, but we discovered a document early on that called it Project Myra. M-Y-R-A. Project Myra. Project Myra was their project by which they were going to select the plant to close out of five plants in the country. They were going to close one out of five. Okay. And I kept asking everybody at Avon in depositions, what's Myra mean? Mm Mm-hmm. And nobody seemed to know. And so we called it, may you retire as soon as possible. (laughs) Because our theory was that they chose the facility with the oldest workforce. And then we stumbled upon documents that supported that theory. Okay. And so they were going to screw a bunch of older females, largely, out of their pensions. Hmm. And uh, they eventually settled. By closing the plant just in time to not have to pay their pensions. Yep, just in time. So most of these people were in their early to mid-50s. Wow. And they would have cashed in on significant pensions had mm-hmm. they lasted like two, three, four more years. Okay, wow. So that was significant. You know, the other ones that made me feel the best, I think, were the ones that were, you know, um, for little guys, you know, when you, you can be successful uh, for somebody that doesn't think they've got a chance, um, people with disabilities, mm-hmm. for some reason, you know, when you successfully settled or won a case for with somebody with a disability, that meant a lot. Um, you know, I think about the small, small guys in quotes. Yeah. You know, a nail tech I represented who was a minimum wage worker and left a nail tech business. You know, she's making like seven and a quarter an hour, and they tried to enforce a non-compete against her so she couldn't wow. work. Wow. And we, we got over to non-compete. I felt really good about that, you know. Mm-hmm. And, you know, representing employees, you got a lot of thank you notes and you got hugs and yeah, everything yeah. else. It just makes you feel good when you can help those people. And the Avon case, even though that was a bigger um, case, not just one little guy, it got, it kind of gave you and Jeff confidence. Like, hey, maybe we can really do like some big good work here. Yes. And it really helped the business because it kind of put us on the map. I mean, there were Back in the day when people read newspapers, there were actually articles in the newspaper about it. 
Okay. And so that was kind of the advertising. We we didn't do any other advertising. It was all word of mouth. But the Cincinnati Enquirer was great free advertising. So if you want a case, you know, back in those days, you know, you might win a case and it might be on the front page of the wow. Cincinnati Enquirer. You know, we had one case and ended up on the front page of the Cincinnati Enquirer. Wow. That's pretty good advertising. Yeah, I would say so. You know. <laughs> and I was a guy with a disability. Okay. And it felt really good. Yeah. But and there's 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 many, many of them that make you oh, feel sure. good. But the Avon case kind of gave us our legs mm-hmm. uh, to get going and expand more. And we had pri- we had kind of a rapid um, hiring uh, session shortly thereafter. Did you? Okay. Yeah. But Becky, you know, what I am most proud of is that we decided very early on to take on what we called mission cases. These were small cases financially, but for people who genuinely needed help. You know, basically pro bono work on a somewhat larger scale. And this gradually evolved into the creation of a nonprofit in 2015 that we created along with Paul Tobias to help people who otherwise cannot find quality representation or even get quality legal advice, even if they don't have a good case, so to speak. And that has evolved into what still operates today as a Cincinnati Workers' Rights Project. And what about what about the flip side of the coin? Like, what were, are there some cases that stick out to you as having been really disappointing or really hard to see, um, you know, clients that you really liked not win their case? Right. Those are the, those, those are the hardest. I mean, the deck is stacked against you, so you kind of go into it with the feeling that if it goes all the way, these are difficult to win. And those are just the heartbreaking um, cases, you know, and we had many of them. You know, mm-hmm. when you were singing my praises earlier, you probably could have also said that I've lost more cases than anybody else who's <laughs> gone to trial because we had a lot of trials. Uh, but you know, you, you probably look at the cases. data on that. I don't know about that, but when people, you know, when people get screwed, and you do the investigation, and you really see how it impacted their family, yeah, and then not to be able to get a good result for them, it just leaves you with a pit in your stomach. Yeah, I can remember a particular sexual harassment case I had, where I was just flabbergasted by the judge's decision not even to allow us to go to trial and just made me feel horrible for I don't know, days or weeks. Mm-hmm. It just kind of sticks in my mind. Uh, we had one big case against Ford Motor Company probably haunted me for years just because you, you knew. What about that, that one haunted you? Just the, we, we knew how good the case was, uh, how victimized this woman was, how traumatic it was for her how her career was ruined all because of the actions of one particular guy and because of the status of sexual harassment law back then, Mm -hmm. it just wasn't as well recognized. And you just walked out of there after we lost. It was a, the jury was undecided for like three days and they finally came back and asked the judge a question, and the judge, we thought, gave them the wrong answer. And then they, oh, wow. they quickly came back against us, and it just, it's just terrible mm-hmm. because 
you know. Well, you've gotten to know your clients pretty well by that point, and you've worked with them so closely, and then you feel so helpless. Right. These clients become friends because you're you're in touch with them so frequently. Right. And so you do develop a lot of good, long-lasting personal relationships. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess going along with, you know, cases that you've been really proud of or cases that have been really hard for you, like what are the things about being a lawyer that you've really enjoyed and what are the parts about being a lawyer that um, – you know, now that you're entering retirement, you will not miss. Okay. So what did I enjoy? Well, I, I enjoyed doing trials. Okay. Clearly. I loved doing trials. So you were right as a teenager. That's what you wanted to do. You figured it <laughs> right. Out. I wanted to most be Ralph people, Mitchell. You figured it out very early. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I just didn't realize all the work that goes up to the trial. To actually be in the trial. Right. right. Trials generally come about two years after a case starts. Wow. And there's a lot of what's called discovery. Um, and how much of your year would be spent actually in a trial? Like on a... Oh, you know, trials are not all that frequent. You know, I was accused of doing a lot of trials uh, during my career. But, I, you know, if I did six, seven, eight in a year, that was a lot. Okay. You know, there are many trial lawyers that haven't done trials for a long time. You know, most cases settle is the reality. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, you have to be kind of a, a risk taker, somewhat of a gambler to go to trial if you're on the plaintiff's side. So I enjoyed that, but I also enjoyed the counseling uh, of clients when they would come in and just the kind of the educational part about explaining what's legal and illegal. And also some people just came in for advice. You know, um, I had many people that came in over the years with severance packages in their early 60s. And much of the conversation turned to, should I retire? And I just kind of enjoyed, you know, yeah, learning about their families and how they thought through that and giving them advice. Interesting. That's... I didn't like the middle part. So between the initial consultation and the trial, <laughs> what's called the discovery <laughs> phase is all the hard work. That really big part in the middle there. Yeah, I was really good at delegating that stuff to somebody else, you <laughs> know, as the years went on. <laughs> There were a lot, some trials when I went in and I hardly ever knew the defense lawyer when I walked in the courtroom. I would know the client, obviously, from the initial meeting and then occasional interactions in the two years between the initial consultation and the trial. But uh, that's, that's really hard work. It's stressful. There's a lot of arguing. You know, I spent a lot of time between the initial consultation and trials arguing all day long with lawyers representing the other side. Mm. And it's just, it's not good. It's not healthy. Yeah. So I will not miss arguing so much. (laughs) (laughs) Got it. Got it. Well, and you always um, talk in your other episodes about work being, you know, more more than just you know, making a living. It's about, you know, meaning and dignity. Um, and I feel like law- people, lawyers kind of get like a bad rap. You know, you get called sharks. Um, what You've touched on this, I think, in bits and pieces, but what part of being a lawyer gave you the most meaning and purpose? Well, it's just trying to help people find dignity. I mean, uh, you know, taking away somebody's job after 20 years Mm -hmm. is very hard on that person. It's like a divorce. 
And part of our job was to try to restore the dignity of that, um, either by getting the employer to acknowledge some fault by way of settling the case. Um, I don't know. I think if you if you get treated very badly in a relationship and there's some acknowledgement, and unfortunately in our legal system, the acknowledgement is usually money. Mm-hmm. Um, but sometimes you get a an employer to apologize. Sometimes you get an employer to write a letter of reference that is better than they wanted to write. Sometimes they would write a check. But a, but a resolution of that dispute that the client thinks is at least reasonable, you just feel like you've done something to restore uh, something. Restore dignity. Yeah, restore their dignity. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's what made us uh, keep going. Well, that's interesting. So I think we're in pretty different fields. I'm a, a marriage and family therapist. Yes, um, you are. But I work with couples, and there's definitely a lot to be said for just acknowledging like mistakes that you've made and what's gone wrong. You can't go back and fix it, but such a big impact that can be made by just like genuinely acknowledging it. And for uh, just individuals who come in, like the half the value of therapy is just having another person acknowledge what you've been through or what you experienced, even if nobody else will really see that. So that's interesting. Right. I, I, Maybe our I, careers I were a little some... more similar <laughs> than we thought. <laughs> Pretty different, but <laughs> I, I think the, some well, overlap. No, I, uh, terminations <laughs> from employment are much like divorce. I yeah, mean, yeah. Long relationships, uh, a lot of promises made along the way. Yeah. And then somebody says, you know, get out of here tonight. <laughs> you know. True, true. And it's, yeah, traumatic in some ways. Right. Well, so tell me who have been, you've named, you know, many people already, but are there any other influential mentors that we haven't touched on yet or any other people that you'd want to just acknowledge? You know, uh, as far as mentors, I really have to say it's it's Jim Lawrence initially and then Paul Tobias. Mm-hmm. Uh, second, when I jumped the fence over to the plaintiff side, you know, a lot of good people I've worked with, you know, my... Uh, former partners it's kind of funny to call my former partners but you know (laughs) kelly myers katie neff george rule john allison everybody else i worked with it freaking in bets we rarely had a bad relationship in that office it was very much like a family i mean people in that office just supported each other like crazy Sometimes it was a little bit too much like a family because of family <laughs> feuds. Sure. Uh, but it's really all of those people that helped along the way because, you know, I, I said before about Jim Lawrence making me feel like part of a team. I, You know, most of the trials we did were as teams. It was, it was rarely a solo event. Okay. And so it was always a sense of team. You had another lawyer. You had paralegals. You had administrative assistants. You know, we've gotten great compliments over the years just on our receptionist. You know, I always believed instead of an answering machine or, you know, some recording, we're going to have a real person answer the phone and greet you when you come in the door. And I think it makes a big impact. And it's pretty it, rare now. It makes people feel good, yeah. I think, that they're acknowledged and treated well. How is Freaking Myers and Rule doing with your recent retirement? 
They're doing great. <laughs> you know, I think, uh, you know, we plan the retirement for a few years, uh, but, you know, uh, Kelly's the managing partner. She's doing a great job. Uh, as far as I can tell, uh, they're doing, I, I don't, I don't think they miss me. <laughs> I don't know if they know if I'm, if I'm gone actually. Right. Has anybody looked in your office? I don't know if they've looked in my office or not. So, I don't know. Somebody might've moved in right away. You somebody might've moved in. I don't check. know. I'm trying not to go down there. I'm trying my best not to go down there. I don't want to disrupt anything. They seem to be doing just fine. All right, good. Well, just a couple more questions for you. Um, what would you go back and tell your younger self if you could? If you could find Randy at 20, 25, what would you go? What would I tell Randy? Yeah, with the benefit younger... of what you know now. Hmm. Any warnings you'd give them? You know, I, I don't know. That's that's a really good question. That kind of makes me pause here. Uh, I think if I didn't become a lawyer, I would have tried to become an entrepreneur of some sort. Okay. And becoming, you know, starting a law firm uh, helped me satisfy that kind of desire. Although, you know, it's really, it's sort of a, it's a business, obviously, but it doesn't, fe it feels more like a profession than a business. Um, but there are other career paths you could have seen yourself taking? You know, I don't, well, if, if I could have been a sports journalist, I probably would have done that. I, I probably would have regretted it because I would not have liked all the traveling. You know, I also I wanted to be a baseball umpire at one time. That would have been really stupid. <laughs> you know, thank God my parents didn't let me go to the uh, Harry Wendelstedt School for umpiring rather than the University of Dayton, which is what I wanted to was do. Was that a proposal that you made to that them? That was a proposal I made wow. to them, and they, they told me, no, thank you. Wow. Uh, you know, the other thing— So it thing, was just karma that I told you I was going to go to college for theater. Yeah. I, 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 <laughs> what I would tell my younger self is I should have made more of an effort to learn more about a lot of different subjects. Okay. You know, I read an article recently that said everyone should strive to learn something new every day. And you hear that expression, you learn something new every day, but you really don't. I mean, you just kind of say it as an offhand comment when you do learn something new. But the point, point of this person's uh, story or quote was that you should really try to broaden your knowledge. You know, I wish I would have tried over the 30 years to just learn more about history, you know, whatever, whatever it is, hmm. whatever subject, you know, you have to grow. And if you don't grow, you rot. And so I think I would have told myself to be more intent on educating myself and kind of invest in myself. Okay. Outside of law. Outside of other law. Areas. Right. Learn about, I don't know, geology, the national parks. Learn about something. Why? So you become what? a broader person. Just you okay. know, You'd have a broader. Okay. Um. Like a fuller life? Or... A fuller life. Okay. You know, you've got to, you got to keep growing. Don't just keep going down the same path and uh, tunnel vision. Mm -hmm. You know, have other interests. I, I had a lot of other interests, but I don't think I really focused on learning about more things. Well, and culturally, I feel like there's this idea that you should pick something pretty early and then just kind of stick with it and run right. for the rest of your life culturally. It's yes. sort of not 
looked upon very well <laughs> to dabble in this or dabble in that. You're well, supposed people, to at a pretty young age stick. Yeah, people do jump around more. There's a lot of free agents these days. You know, certainly True. When, I, when I started, it was almost taboo to leave someplace. You know? Right. That's definitely not as much the case now. That's not the case anymore. But I would tell a young lawyer today. Yeah. What would you tell a law student today? I would say find something that you're passionate about, that you're going to enjoy doing and not focus on the money. You know, put the hmm. what do you want to do first and then figure out whether you can make money doing it. I think that's what Jeff and I did. Um, and I will say the happiest lawyers I know make the least amount of money among lawyers. Really? The unhappiest lawyers are the guys who are really killing it financially. Hmm. Why is that? A lot of lawyers get into it. And money becomes the be-all and end-all in some sense. Mm-hmm. Or to keep keep up that lifestyle, you've got just got to keep grinding and grinding and grinding. You know, there are very there are great lawyers at places like the Legal Aid Society, a lot of uh, volunteer, you know, uh, nonprofit organizations. They're just wonderful people. They're great lawyers, and they're happy because they're they've. They're serving a purpose mm-hmm. as opposed to just billing hours. Right. And they can see that impact. They meet those oh. people and talk to them. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, I think Good find advice. something that fills your soul. Mm-hmm. Right. Not just a paycheck. Right. I never, I never went to the office thinking, oh boy, just another day. You know, we always had interesting cases, and we were we were very lucky. You know, we were in a field where we weren't really fighting other lawyers for clients, and we were just yeah, we were kind of all in the ship. You know, the National Employment Lawyers Association is almost a a huge law firm with you know a thousand different offices. You know, <laughs> we're all kind of on one team, but we're doing it independently. Any thoughts on the future of employment law? You feel discouraged? Hopeful? You know, I, that's a really good question, Becky. Um, you know, employment law has advanced so much since 1990, you know, believe it or not, when I, when I went out in December of 1990, employees who claimed race discrimination, sex discrimination, age discrimination, didn't even have a right to a jury trial. Oh, wow. That changed in 1991. They were given a right to a jury trial, which makes a big difference. Yeah. And I'm encouraged by the fact that there have been a lot of advances in employment law. You know, we've got the Americans with Disabilities Act that we didn't have in 1990. We've got the Family Medical Leave Act. We've got all sorts of advances in employment law. I'm not, I'm okay. not so sure it's any easier to win these cases, but at least there's some recognition that employers have to treat people more fairly today than there was in 1990 for sure. Okay. Um, I am discouraged somewhat by the politicization of the judiciary. Mm. The judges are very important. You know, you can have a jury trial and that's all well and good, but the judge is the most important person there. That's interesting. I don't think and, many people think of it that way. Right. Federal courts have judges in which presidents 
nominate judges for lifetime appointments. And judges should be selected because of all the lawyers in our society, who should be the judges? It should be the people that are the most fair-minded and reasonable lawyers. Right. If that was the criteria, we'd be in great shape. Unfortunately, it's not the criteria. Right. It's what political party do you belong to? Yikes. Who have you supported in campaigns? Mm-hmm. That's terrible. And, you know, I, I think every judge, I don't think I ever had a judge who I thought was intentionally trying to screw my client. But we all have biases. Right, right. right. I have biases. I would decide cases one way that another person would decide another way because we all come in everything with a bias. But, you know, we were lucky in Cincinnati federal courts in this, what's called the Southern District of Ohio. We had what I thought were fair-minded people when politics did not, I, I, I didn't think, influence the appointment of judges so much. Mm-hmm. Right. Not maybe not as much as it does today. Not as much. Mm-hmm. You know, we had Herman Weber here, one of my all-time favorites, uh, Mike Barrett, who's still on the bench, just a fair-minded guy. He's a Republic. He's a former chairman of the Republican Party. Utmost respect for the guy because he's fair-minded. Susan DeLott, same way. Judge Bertelsman across the river. Timothy Black, locally, same way. Fair-minded people. They, I, I disagreed with them all the time, <laughs> but I never thought that their political views were getting in the way of their decisions. Clouding their judgment, yeah. Nowadays, I'm not so sure about that. That's the thing that okay. I think is discouraging. And there's some hostility in the federal courts toward employment discrimination cases that I can't really understand. Hmm. But there has been a growing hostility to employment discrimination cases. It's become harder. Interesting. At least in our local jurisdiction, it's been become harder to win these cases. Okay. But the judges have a huge impact. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, there's good and bad. You yeah. Know, there's a... Right. There's when you, a, I mean, when you look at the context of 30 years, things have gotten better in certain ways, and there are definitely reasons to feel hopeful, but also for lots of other valid reasons, reasons to worry. That's right. Okay. Well, and now that you are officially retired, what are you excited to make more room for in your life? Are there any more books in your future? Are there any more books in my future? I don't know about that. I would like to do it someday. I'm not sure about that. Um, but, um, you know, what I like about retirement is that I have time to do things. I'm not running from here to there. I, I was always on a pretty tight schedule uh, when I was working. And people ask me all the time, why did you d- decide to retire? And I mentioned before that I discussed that with clients from time to time. And I always thought it was three questions that everybody should ask themselves. And if they can go, yes, 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 it's time to retire. Okay. And those three questions are, do you have enough? Okay. Have you had enough? Okay. And do you have enough to do? Okay. And if you can go, yes, 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 why in the world 
are you working? Interesting. You want to you want to want to win one more case? <laughs> Jeez, that's wonderful. You know, do you want to build one more widget? Great for you. <laughs> right, is there a real good reason you're continuing to work or are you just have you just kind of lost sight of there are other things you could be spending your time and your energy on? Right. Now that you can. Yeah, when human beings came on the face of the planet, if they were just provided everything you need, food, clothing, etc., do you think we'd have jobs to do? No. We would enjoy the planet. Mm-hmm. So I say go out and enjoy the planet so long as you you know have enough in the sense you can sustain yourself. Right, right. And I think a lot of people are more uncertain than they should be about whether they have enough to do hmm. because there's a lot of things to do out there. And probably with empty time, you'll find yeah. those things. Enjoy your grandchildren. Nothing better than that. <laughs> Enjoy your own family. Travel. You know, whatever it is, read. I mean, there's a million things to do other than work. Why would you choose to work? Like you could make a podcast about work. You could make a podcast about work. You could write <laughs> a book. one of the things you could you do. You could do all sorts of things. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, boys, oh, boys, oh, boys, as my father-in-law used to say. (laughs) Last question for you. Uh Which which has been most stressful for you, being the host of this podcast or being the interviewee of this podcast? No question. (laughs) (laughs) Becky, you've done a fantastic job. Thank you. Thank you for uh, handing me your mic this week. I really appreciate it. I know you weren't very excited about it, but appreciate you doing it anyway. I have to admit I gave a reluctant yes, but this has been fun. (laughs) It does teach me something about being on the other uh, side of the table. Nice. So maybe that'll help me if we have future uh, podcasts. So, ladies and gentlemen... I'm going to take over now. All right. You can have it. This is a special bonus episode of Freaking Out About Work with Randy Freaking. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. We hope you will listen to previous podcasts and stay tuned as we explore other aspects of working life in America if we choose to do so in the future. Thank you very much. And thank you, Becky. This has been fun. Thank you. It's been great. (laughs) (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, that concludes this episode of Freaking Out About Work with Randy Freaking, the podcast about everything related to your work, your rights and responsibilities in the workplace, whether you're a minimum wage worker, a blue or white collar employee, or an executive. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and will tune in next time when we explore more about working. I want to conclude this episode from Studs Terkel that I find valuable. Quote, work is about a search for daily meaning as well as daily bread, for recognition as well as cash, for astonishment rather than apathy. In short, for a sort of life rather than a Monday through Friday sort of dying, unquote. Let's hope that we can all find daily meaning as well as daily bread and recognition as well as monetary benefits. See you next time on Freaking Out About Work 
and please spread the word if you have enjoyed this podcast. Tell your friends how easy it is to go to freakingoutabout.com. And freaking out about is all one word. Thank you, everyone.